welcome to Humans of Magic, the show where I get into the minds of some of the world's best magic players and personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. I love telling stories, and I love learning from other people. In this series, my guests and I talk about Magic the Gathering, but the game is just a starting point. It is 100% focused on the guests themselves. This is a place where I can highlight their passions, interests, and stories. You'll hear less talk about magic-specific strategy and more talk about what my guests have learned over the years. I hope that you will enjoy these free-flowing conversations. Today on Humans and Magic, I'm hanging out with Bryant Cook. Brian is the innovator and creator of the deck that is known as the Epic Storm, which is a storm-based combo deck in the legacy format of Magic the Gathering. He actually grew up in the Syracuse, New York area, and we talk a little bit about the scene back then and how he started playing the format that previously was called 1.5 and is now known as Legacy, and some of the best players that he's had the fortune to play against and learn from. Along the way, we also talk about some of his approaches to the game, some of his best moments, some of his advice for success in the game, and hobbies such as his love for baseball. So I really enjoyed the talk because I had known Brian since last year, and previous to that I've always been a fan of the Epic Storm, having played the deck for several years, but it was really quite something to get inside the mind of Brian and really learn about his lessons, his ups and downs as a Magic player over the years. And I had a lot of fun talking to him, and I hope you enjoyed this interview. So today I'm here with the master of storm and magic player all around extraordinaire, Brian Cook. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Not bad, James. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thank you so much for doing this. No problem. So uh, how are things going for you recently? Uh, not too bad. I just got back from Star City Games uh, Wooster this past weekend. Oh, yeah. How did that go for you? Uh, pretty medium. I went six and three. Uh, I faced zero Miracles decks and four Chalice of the Void decks after I cut my Hercules recalls, so that didn't feel so great. Yeah, so you, you win some and you lose some sometimes, I guess. Yeah, that's magic, lots of variants. Yeah, exactly. So maybe we can just start from the beginning. I'd love to know, just starting from the very beginning of your life maybe, like where you came from and uh, where you grew up, and tell me a little bit about that. Well, uh, I've lived most of my life in Syracuse, New York. I don't know. Like, I got involved with games pretty young, I guess. Like, I remember getting my first Super Nintendo. My mom drove... I actually rode her bike to a Walmart to get me Donkey Kong Country. I don't know. It's just, like, an early memory of mine. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about your parents. Like, what do they do? And if you have any siblings. Uh, my dad is a truck driver, and my mom is a bus driver. And I have one sister. Do you remember how young you were when you started gaming? Probably five or six. Like, I was born in 89, and I'm pretty sure Super Nintendo was like 94, 95. I could be wrong. Do you remember what was your favorite Super Nintendo game at the time? Hands down, Mario All-Stars. 
Oh, Mario All-Stars. Is that the one where they remade um, the older Mario games with better graphics? Yes, but it also had multiples in there. I want to say there was like three or four. Oh, okay. So what was it about Mario that you really enjoyed at the time? I had an uncle that was also super into it, so I would just like go up to my uncle's house sometimes and we'd just play Mario Brothers for hours. I don't know, it was just fun. When what was your what were some of your earliest competitive experiences in gaming or otherwise? With gaming? It was probably Pokemon. Uh my parents wouldn't let me buy the card, so what would happen is uh like elementary school ends at like two o'clock. I would purposely skip lunch and save my lunch money. And then I would save my lunch money and then I would go to like, uh, I call it, think they're called like TV Toys or like Toys R Us. And I would buy packs of Pokemon, but I didn't even really know how to play. So myself and the neighbor kid would slowly like collect the cards and like make up our own rules and play like that. And we were very competitive. He had a Charizard, so I kind of hated him for it. But, you know, it's like having a Black Lotus today, right? Yeah. I remember, well, I think all of us remember Pokemon, the card game back then. So it, you were essentially acquiring the cards without actually playing the game so much. Yeah. So you played a whole bunch of games and video games. Did you do anything else other than video games? Like, were you into board games at all or other types of entertainment? Uh, not really board games. To be honest, I find them kind of boring other than Settlers of Catan, which I'm overly competitive in. But, uh... I played a lot of sports growing up. You might, it might not look like it now, considering I'm like 5'10 and like pretty average looking. But I played a lot of baseball and some basketball. Yeah, I mean, is baseball your... Is this something that you still... Baseball and basketball, are these sports that you still play? I play like recreational softball for the company I work for. And I'm not athletic enough to play basketball. I still like watching both. I'm a huge Mets fan, and I also like casually watch the Lakers. They're pretty terrible, though. <laughs> yeah, they are. How old were you when you started playing baseball? Younger than video games. I remember being the kid that, like, my dad tried playing catch with me, and I had, like, the bag of peas over my eye after the first throw because I didn't go up. I want to know, when did you first start playing Magic, and what led you to that? A kid that I went to school with that bought a pack brought it in. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And he told me that there was, like, an after-school Magic Club. And this was probably, like, 7th or 8th grade. And I went to this after-school magic club. Somebody lent me a deck. And I played against this kid who didn't seem very intelligent, to be honest. But he had this, like, Royal Assassin, Icy Manipulator, Ice Flow deck that just, like, crushed everything every other single kid was trying to do. And it was because his cards were older, I felt like, at the time. When, when I had started, 7th edition slash Odyssey were still like the new sets. And he was playing cards that were clearly a little, little bit older and maybe a little bit more powerful. So I was like, I'm going to beat this guy. Do you remember what kind of decks or cards you were playing when you first started Magic? I don't really remember mine. Like I had an elf deck that was just elves that wasn't constructed or standard or even block or anything like that. It's just like random elves that I found that I liked. And I remember playing against a lot of like current standard decks. Like people at school tried to build blue green madness or psychotog, but it was always budget versions. Like they would have like one or two circular logics. They didn't have like upheaval because upheaval was kind of expensive back then. Stuff like that. 
Okay. And how big was the playgroup in your school? Probably like eight to ten people. About the size of a local legacy event here. Not that great. So how did you go from that to playing in your first competitive tournament? I remember my first competitive tournament very well because I'm sort of bitter about it considering the first two people I played against still play to this day. And uh, one of them is the reason that I refuse to split prizes. So uh, I'll start with like the first event. Uh, so I went to play the game Read the Story, which back then was called Altered States. And I brought this massive pile of elves that had... I remember buying four Defense of the Heart because I thought that card was just insane because I could put two Avatars of Might into play with my elf deck. And I just thought it was like, I could play Defense of the Heart on turn three. Oh my god. <laughs> and the first guy I play against is playing uh, like what he used to call Five Color Blue. This was before Fetchlands. And so he had four of each blue dual land and had all of the colors in his deck. So he had Forbids, Forcibles, Mana Drains, Squeeze, Masticors, Pernicious Deeds, Swords to Plowshares, Intuitions. And everything I did, he just had an answer for. And he absolutely crushed me. He also, I believe, had Standstills and Fairy Conklin. And I just continually played Elves into his Masticor. And after a while, he's like, do you not understand why your creatures are dying? And then he just, like, outright said it. And I was like, oh, I can't beat that. Then he moves. You want to go to the next game? And then the same thing happened. Right. And uh, got crushed. It was a little defeating considering how I had gotten to the point where I was one of the better players in my school. Mm-hmm. And then the second round, I play against uh, Jeff Smelski, who was a big player in the Northeast for a long time. And he goes, turn one, Dark Ritual, Engineer Plague, Elf, go. And I just kept on playing Elves. And he's like, this card is going to keep on killing all of your 1-1s. <laughs> and I was like, well, that doesn't seem fair. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, so after losing both rounds, I dropped, even though I didn't find this out until later, I could have kept playing. And uh, as for the not splitting thing, Jeff Smelski, when I was younger, would not split with anyone because he's just the best player in the area and he knew that he could win. And uh, over time, it made me a little bit spiteful uh-huh. as I would like get to the finals and I'd play him and he crushed me and it just happened so much to the point where, where I became one of the better players in the area. I was like, I have been denied all these split prizes all this time yeah. I'm going to do this thing and like reap the rewards and then <laughs> I don't know one day I just decided I wasn't going to do it for any event even if I wasn't the best player in the top 8 and I kind of just stuck with it since okay okay very interesting so what happened like after the first tournament were you hooked on magic did you keep going to tournaments on a regular basis after that so I tried to go like when my parents would let me because I was still like I want to say like 12 or 13 and dropping me off at this game store full of grown men I don't think they liked very much, but I tried to go back when I could, and I remember there was like a solid year and a half, maybe even two years, right? I just went, and I went like two and two every event, and if I went three and one, I was like so excited, I told my parents just because like it was pretty rare, and then I switched to a deck that people called Suicide Black, which was Sinkholes, Santuco Shades, uh, Dark Rituals, Hemdatorox. And that's when the deck that I started beating players that were better than me with Mm -hmm. because the cards were just a lot stronger at the time. Yeah, I mean, that was one of my favorite decks Uh, when I started playing, I guess, 1.5 or Legacy. That was uh, definitely black has always been my my favorite color. I am wondering, 
though as you started to go like three and one or better and you started winning with that suicide black deck did you feel like you were turning the corner because of your play skill your experience the cards themselves or some combination of the above or was it something else it was probably a combination of the above but i also started to realize like what my opponents were trying to do to me mm -hmm. at that young age it hadn't fully clicked yet so i was like starting to realize like this strategy beats this strategy, this one is better against this one, and like one deck couldn't beat everything. The whole Suicide Black deck appealed to me because you could beat better players by denying them their best cards because your cards were destructive. They weren't maybe the best, but they just stopped your opponents from doing things. Yeah, absolutely. So take me through that. You started playing in those tournaments and you started to see some success. And I'm trying to understand, like, was there a point in time where you said, hey, I'm actually getting pretty good at this game, I want to get more serious at it, or is it just kind of something that you just kept plugging away? So after Suicide Black, I moved to Junk, which had Spectral Links in it, and I picked up Pernicious Deeds, which were like $20 back then, in a time where, like, the most expensive card was Morphling or Intuition at 30 and even Forcible was like $8, $10. So... I got these Pernicious Deeds, and I played that deck for a little while, but I didn't really like it. And then I saw a group of who I would consider to be, like, the best Magic team in Syracuse playing this deck called Angel Control, and I just copycatted it. I forgot a deck in between. I played Landstill for a while, back when it was uh, Jeskai Colors, and it had, like, main deck Fire Ice and Flame Tongue Kabus. I top eight in my first big event with that. It was called the Big Arse in Syracuse. It was huge. Uh, back then, all of the events were player-run, so it was, I want to say, 82 players, and like people drove up from Virginia, and being like a 12- or 13-year-old kid, I top-aided that and beat the person that went undefeated through the Swiss um, Life.deck, so that was like my first big event that I did well in, and then after that, I built Angel Control, and that was the first deck I really excelled with, where I felt like I was a better player. It's also interesting to know that you played all these kind of different decks over the years and that your first real quote-unquote success was, was a control deck because I, I actually <laughs> did, not, did not expect that given, um, given what, what you're known for now in today's uh, legacy format. So that's, that's really cool. And back then when you were playing these different decks and you mentioned you know there was a Syracuse crew and things like that, were there particular players that you befriended and got close with uh, at the time? It's kind of a stupid name, but there was a team called Team Sexy. Mike Edinger was on it, who's Teeny Bopper on the source, and Colin Chilbert, who's D, who used to be Diabolus from the source, and a bunch of other names that probably nobody would recognize. Uh, but they were a part of the best team. And uh, there was one guy who, I don't still hold this against him, but being very young, I was spiteful, where I was playing against uh, a guy on this team, and one of his friends came up. They were like, hey, do you want to go get food next door? And the guy goes, wait until after I beat the scrub. And I was like, hey, man, I'm sitting right here. And I kind of held that with me for a couple of years. Says, hey, like, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to be better than you. And I don't know, maybe a little bit vindictive, but it certainly gave me motivation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes it's these little things that uh, fuel our competitive fire. That's, uh, that's understandable. At what point did you start playing, I guess, what was called 
back then. Well, that was 1.5, actually. I don't know if you know this. Like, the source was actually created in upstate New York, where I'm from. So the 1.5 scene up here was just huge, larger than standard by far. Um, how was it that Syracuse or that area was the, became the hotbed for 1.5? Was it just because that's what everybody wanted to play? Was there like one person or two people that that really focused on that? Like I'm trying to understand how it really blew up there. The source was a part of the managering that split off and. Two of the original three moderators were from upstate New York. There was Colin Schilbert, who's Diablo slash D. He's from Syracuse. He's a pretty good friend of mine. And then Peter Rotten, who is like the original like badass admin on the source. And he's from Albany, which is like the next big town over about two hours away. One of the towns would hold events and we would go to each other's. I don't know. It's just like what happened, I guess. Okay, so that must have been really good to be a part of it all and now I'm asking when did you go from playing those kind of different decks to landing on combo I mean what what was your first combo deck and when did you start playing it I don't know if I remember my first one to be honest I played a lot of combo decks before I landed on like storm combo it's tough like I remember playing dragon back during 1.5 it was just like one of the best decks I also played food chain goblins if you consider that a combo deck because it could kill on turn two, hypothetically. Sure. Back then, in 1.5, though, there was very few kills on turn one. Like, you could create, like, quote-unquote god hands that could do it, but they just weren't very common. Right. And then when the uh, reserve list split, or not reserve list, but, like, the ban list split from Vintage, and it became Legacy, then ban Chromox and Lotus Paddle, and all these new possibilities happened. And uh, there was a deck... Uh, that was created initially called Belcher, which everybody knows today. But back then it was like black-based, but it also had like Birds of Paradise in it, which was kind of weird. There was also Nausea, which was a City of Traders-based deck that tried to put uh, Hum of Awakening into play. Mm -hmm. I think those were the big ones at the time. And my first initial Epic Storm list was based on like vintage decks mixed with Nausea, mixed with Belcher. And it ran, like, Trinket Mage and Priest of Gix. It just wasn't very good. I'm, I'm wondering how you came up with that initial idea to sort of deviate from the de facto Belcher lists at the time. It sounds like from previous decks that you played, they were more accepted decks. I mean, I'm just wondering about how you got into, how you started verging into the Epic Storm territory. So I had always tried building my own decks, just like for fun. Uh, I remember creating this, like, what I consider to be pretty sweet at the time. Uh, maybe it was after. Uh, it was, like, right when the Ravnica Shocks came out, because it was the first time that you had eight underground seas. So I just ran a bunch of fetch lands, the eight underground sea effects, bubbling up high tide, and a deck with Severance Belcher, and then uh, also Tendrils, so, like, you had multiple ways of killing that weren't brain freeze, because at the time, Solidarity was a big deck. But... For like merging into the Epic Storm, I was pretty unhappy with like the how inconsistent the other two decks were because like Belcher could kill you turn one, but most games it killed you like turn four just because it didn't have cantrips like effects like Street Wraith and Gitaxian Probe didn't exist yet, so like the deck was just very clunky and full of bad cards. Nausea just like all of that colorless mana from City of Traders effects, and also had Land Grant. So for, like, Bayou, it just left you with a lot of mana that you couldn't really use. 
Like, you didn't really want green. And colorless mana was only so good. Like, the deck was just bottleneck on black mana. So I decided I was going to build my own deck. And I remember people at the time were trying to break diminishing returns. So I built a deck of four Lotus Petals, four Chrome Moxes, uh, Dark Rituals, Cabal Rituals, uh, Priest of Gix, Trinket Mage, Burning Wish. I'm sure if you dig hard enough, you can find the original thread. I was like 13 when I typed it up, so uh, please forgive me for my language and poor spelling. <laughs> no worries. And I remember seeing a list of cards that you had tried in the past. Maybe it was in the Epic Storm thread. And it, do it does seem like you had had your fair share of experimentation and you know successes and failures when it comes to trying different cards. Is that fair? Uh, definitely. There was a long while where I was like hellbent, pun intended, keeping Second Sunrise in the deck because I thought the deck should be a Second Sunrise-based deck. And Adam Barnello, uh, you might recognize him as Nightmare, just pretty much forced me to move off it. And I'm pretty thankful that he did because it just wasn't the right move. I mean, you were still quite young at the time, so just thinking about it, it must have been, it must have taken quite a bit of willpower to stick it out and try different things with the deck, because I know one of the things is that you obviously are a competitive person. If you're competitive and you want to win, there might be sort of a shorter path where you just take established decks and try to go forward with them. I'm wondering, what was it in your mind that kind of made you keep going with these kind of uh, experiments, even though you knew that you know, they may not be the highest percentage win rate when you were playing them at the time. I'm not going to claim to be, like, this great brewer because I'm really not. Like, I just stuck with one deck for a long time and, like, kept on tweaking it. Mm -hmm. The group of people I hung out with, none of us were really on that, like, famous Magic team in Syracuse. I shouldn't say famous, but, like, big Magic team in Syracuse. So we recreated our own team called Team Shitlist, which became uh, Team The Epic Syndicate. Mm -hmm. Those people, we just playtested a lot. And we drove one another to become better. Like one thing that I like always kept me very competitive was, and I don't even know if the other guys know this, but so we had this thread in our like private message board of our accomplishments, and you would be ranked by how many accomplishments you had. So if you top eight in an event and you had seven, and everyone else had six, you would be first on the list. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to be at the top on the list. So I just, like, drove myself to be better and better. And then over time, I kept updating my spreadsheet or list as time went on, even though I didn't mention this, but, like, the Epic Syndicate broke up. We just decided we weren't going to be a team anymore. So I kept on updating my list as time goes on, and I still update it to this day as, like, personal motivation. I keep it in a Google sheet and just, like, look at it. I even use it to, like, mark what I've gotten in the past and, like, what I've earned and, like, how much things cost, etc. So did you keep track of the other team members still to this day, or have they, have they, stopped, have they stopped playing? Some of them still play. Uh, most of them do not. It's kind of sad, but, like, some of those people had very big influences on my life growing up. Uh, they definitely, like, shaped me into a better person and, like, more of the person I am today. I won't give them full credit. But they definitely steered me in the right direction. Can you give me an example? Like, you don't have to give me their name specifics, but just give me an example of how they really helped you outside of the game, outside of Magic. Uh, Zach Tartel. His name on the source is actually just Zach Tartel. You might recognize him from the Enchantress thread in the early post. He's just, like, one of my good friends. 
and we would just like talk about things. I don't want to like drop personal stuff on here, but he would like help me with things that was going on in my life outside of magic. Like, I guess like talking to girls and not having nerd shame. Because when I was younger, I definitely didn't want to tell high school girls or like middle school girls or however old I was that I played magic cards because it felt embarrassing at the time. But he was just like, hey, man, they probably don't care. You're making a bigger deal out of it. And as you get older, you'll see it just doesn't matter. And I mean, he was right. But in hindsight, it was very unnerving, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, were they all around the same age or were some of them older than you or... I was by far the youngest person in the group. Okay. I think I was probably 16, and they were going into college, so like maybe 20-ish, 21. Yeah, I mean, you guys were pretty tight, right? So despite the age difference, I'm going to guess that it was fine when you guys were talking about magic or other things. Yeah, they were great. At that time period for anybody, it's sort of like the the formulative years. So are there, are there learnings from that period of time that you've that have really resonated with you? So I remember doing very well in the SAT vocabulary section because of Magic the Gathering, but Magic itself at the time, probably not, but it was more like things that the people I hung out with had taught me at the time because they were all a little bit more mature and experienced than I was. Mm -hmm. And then you were playing different versions of Storm Combo or the Epic Storm. I mean, was there a particular turning point for you for that deck like did you what was the first big event that you did well at and uh what were the circumstances around that so the first big event i did well with the deck at was actually the first event i took the deck to oh nice uh, i brought it to mana leak in connecticut which was supposed to be a playoff of the mana drain opens so it was the mana leak open um probably butcher's last name but he's a big vintage player ray robiliard uh held the event himself and uh, I want to say it was like 70 or 80 people. And I actually beat a kid from the town next to me in Rochester in the finals. He was playing Psychotog, and I was playing, obviously, the Epic Storm. It was like a really big victory for our team because like a deck that we had built and cultivated had won something. And like it was a big thing for us at the time. How, how did you end up? building on the deck and how I mean you don't have to go into super specifics on card choices but I'm just wondering like your progression as a player did you start going to more tournaments and having more success with the deck progressively or I went to big events that I could I mean I was still living at home because I think I was like 16 after I won the first big event and I didn't have a job so it was like whenever my parents had money that they could afford to give me for traveling purposes we were pretty middle class I guess mm -hmm. So they didn't have tons of extra money to give me to go traveling to other cities or states, etc. And tell me a little bit about how you ended up being such a presence in the Star City stuff. I mean, you've had quite a number of uh, SCG top eights. I think there's maybe seven, six or seven. So I'm just wondering, like, how did you start doing that? And uh, what were your, what kind of experience did you have when you started going to those? So, before Star Cities, there was Jupiter Games, and uh, you probably recognize the name, but Eli Cassis. So, those events were a big deal at the time because they were self-run legacy events, but they were getting, like, 180 people to 20. Like, they were very, they were doing very well for themselves. I had been crushing that event series, just like, I won almost back-to-back -back months. I came in first and second, and then I almost won Player of the Year, where... 
uh, my nose split rule bit me big for the first time, but I don't really want to get into that. Uh, so when I finally went to my first Star City, people on the at the time before it was Twitch, I think it was like maybe Blip TV, kept on requesting that I was on camera. And after a while, I think Star City just gave in. And like I remember going back and reading the thread after on the source, and people are just like, "Yeah, Bryant's on camera," and like all this stuff. So I think it was a lot of the internet pulling for me to be on camera that led to people knowing who I am. I honestly don't think I'm that great of a player. I just do fairly consistent with the deck that I play a lot. Sure, but the tribe had spoken, and that's uh, how you got your your feature. Yeah. Nice. Now my question is a little bit different because you have been playing in Jupiter games and these are massive, massive tournaments with 200 people. So I'm going to guess that going into the Star City game stuff, you were kind of used to the so-called pressure or the, the turnout, right? I was. To be honest, I was like looking around the room at the time thinking like I'm one of the better players in this room for at least when it came to Legacy, but I had recognized names like Jerry Thompson and uh, I was initially a little intimidated, but a lot of the people at these events were very welcoming and friendly, even though like I had seen them on stream and like they were supposed to be like these big deals. And at the time, I didn't watch much coverage, so I only recognized names that I heard my friends talking about. So, I don't know. It just was what it was. But uh, I forgot to mention, I top eight a Grand Prix Columbus, which is like another big break for the Epic Storm at the time. And I felt like Star City might have recognized that. I'm not entirely sure. That was back in 2010, right? Yeah. Okay. Back when I still played Orem's Chant. <laughs> Those were the days. Uh, so, did you ever get nervous when you played in high-level events at all? Like, events like this or otherwise? Going back to one of my old teammates, Adam Barnalo, he used to notice, like, whenever I could tell that I was in a tight spot, like, my face would get red, and I, my hands would just start shaking slowly, and, like, I couldn't contain myself. I was just, like, the pressure and, like, anxiety was getting to me. Mm -hmm. And playing for High Six and Jupiter events just killed it. Like, a lot of people will say that I just have, like, a poker face now. Like, I'll look at my opening hand, and I'll say keep, and they think, like, I'm just going to kill them on turn one, but it's actually, like, not that great, or vice versa. I guess it goes back to... Uh, like the player of the year thing that I said I wouldn't elaborate on, but I guess I will now. Uh, I played Ely Cassis for a single match that was worth $1,700. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was for player of the year and first place. So like that 1700 was the combination of the two. And playing in matches like this at Jupiter where we were playing for hundreds of dollars all at once with no splits, mm -hmm. I just got used to high-pressure situations. And the not chopping thing, no splitting prize ever, just like, took away all that anxiety, and I learned to really like playing when the pressure was on, especially in feature matches. So I feel like I have a slight edge on my opponent sometimes just because I'm used to it and I actually enjoy it. But that must have been quite a process. It sounds like you really worked on it. it you went from someone who got visibly nervous to someone who is actually enjoys being in the, in the spotlight at the time. How did you really? How did you actually work on it? Was it like repetition? Was it like just Adam telling you? Was it like reflection? I'm trying to understand because that's something that afflicts a lot of Magic players. So I don't think it was anything I worked on. I think just the nervousness went away over time. So is it just the fact that you were in that position a lot of times? Definitely, maybe. 
it's tough to like quantify because it, it's been so long since I've been like that, where it's just like trying to recall old feelings I had. Yeah, no, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I it's definitely a surprise to me because I see you on the open series uh, recordings and you look very calm and collected and you do have this poker face now which uh which is good like you have this kind of almost have this grin sometimes like you're just gonna like kill the guy on the turn one or turn two and without getting too hyperbolic like there seems to be this aura about you where the opponents can actually feel kind of nervous around you and i think that definitely works to 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 your advantage and then the other thing i i i noticed too when when you place combo is that you seem to have this ability to just be able to read the opponent can you tell me a little bit about how you developed that skill over time and how it's helped you? So it's like part of the reason that a lot of people on Reddit, uh, I don't want to say it's why they dislike me, but like some people have mentioned it as a quality that they don't like about me, is that in some of my tournament reports, I mentioned that like I sit across from an opponent, I look at them, and in my head I play a game where I guess what they're playing based on their physical appearance. Like uh, guys covered in tattoos with no hair and big beards are playing like Pox Reanimator or Mud. Like, it's a pretty easy guess. Or if uh, they have a big beard, they're kind of a larger guy, I tend to put them on, like, Emrakul or Gristlebrand because they just want to put big stuff in a play. Like, don't get me wrong, skinny short guys could also play Sneak and Show, but it's just this game that I play with myself, and I guess to see if I'm right or wrong. And I think, honestly, I'm probably slightly more right than I am wrong. It's just, like, a guessing game, I guess. But also knowing things like this guy has a counter or this guy has a certain card in his hand, I feel like sometimes I, I've heard people describe you as, you know, like you can, you can look into the guy's eye and kind of read their soul. You can see them, like you can start tapping your land and be like, this guy has a force of will or not. I'm, I'm trying to understand how you develop those, uh, <laughs> those ninja skills, if you will. I wish that was the case, but really it's like gauging a read on your opponent throughout a game. If like they continually leave one blue open, they have spell piercer or fluster storm. Or back in the day it would be stifle or spell snare. Nowadays it's a little tougher because all the counter magic is mostly free. But I don't know, it's just like if your opponent's drawn two live cards in a row, what are the odds that they've drawn a third? That sort of thing. Or you think that they're hiding something on top. So maybe I'm not going to go all in with my Infernal Tutor. Instead, I'll Burning Wish for Past in Flames first and try to bleed them out. So it's just basically experience and common sense, it sounds like. So you do not have a way to read the opponent's soul, just for the record. Is that right? Not at the moment, no. Okay. I recently was talking to Rodrigo Tagoras, who won GP Prague. He has something that I would describe as Yomi. Y-O-M-I. I'm not sure if you've heard of this term, but it's essentially a term that David Serling coined when he was talking about competitive fighting games, where he says some competitive players just have this sort of sixth sense of knowing what the opponent's going to do and sort of anticipating in an almost uh, supernatural way. From talking to him, I really felt like he had some of that. And, and from watching you play, quite honestly, I, I feel like you have some of that as well. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of this term or ever thought in those... Uh, in, in those kind of terms at all. So a lot of that is just like deck familiarity. So like I can look at an opening hand and I'll know most likely my next three or four turns. Same thing with like standard. It's just like knowing the decks and knowing what they're likely going to do. Like what are the probabilities that they have this versus this? And I do a lot of ma uh, math in my head to help me figure out what are the odds that they have for Samoa. 
or what are the odds that they're going to land a counterbalance on turn two? That sort of thing. Right. I don't know. It's just like knowing the decks and knowing play styles more than anything else. So it sounds like just familiarity and having a lot of experience with your deck and what other guys are doing is really the key. Now that you've been playing the Epic Storm a while, and I s- can you tell me a little bit about your website? Tell me about the goals behind your website and how you've done with it so far. So the reason I built the website was updating the opening posts on the source was becoming kind of tedious. It was difficult to read on mobile. It's very tough to hit it, but there's lengths on the post. Like your post can only be so long. And I was definitely hitting it. I had three posts that were completely full. And it was just becoming a hassle. And I'm a web designer as a profession. So I just decided I was going to build a website. And uh, as for the goals, I don't think there really are any, to be honest. It's just to publish great content. I was accused once of just like writing an article for article's sake. And it kind of bothered me because it's not what I want to do at all. Like I don't try to write fluff. I just try to write what's going through my head relating to the deck. That said, it's not just me. There's other great writers on there. I think AJ Kerrigan is hands down a better writer than I am. Uh, He's just better words. There's also Alexandre. He's a newer TES player, but I think his series, the Infernal Tutoring series, is very interesting. And I don't know, anyone that's listening, I recommend checking it out. Not as a plug for my website, but because I don't think there's other article series that are like it at the moment, where it's just multiple people weighing in on what they would do. I think it's a really, it's really great content. Was it him that pitched the idea? It was half me and then half Alexandra. But regardless, it's great. So for the listeners who don't know, I mean, it's really, it's really amazing because essentially Brian and other people weigh in on certain situations. And it's not even just something as simple as like, do I mulligan this hand? It's like, I know this guy's playing this deck and I'm on this turn with this hand. What do I do? And then all the answers are fascinating. And it really shows that people can have different lines of play and different thoughts and still be correct in their own way. So yeah, that's kind of a plug for Brian. Like definitely do check that out. So in terms of the website, you did say that you don't write just for the sake of writing. What is it that really motivates you to share, whether it's a, a deck list or a tournament report or some thoughts on the deck? Well, I've been posting on forums since I started playing Magic around 12 years old. So I would write these really long-winded posts, and I guess like the website just kind of became that. Except now people can't question my thoughts, right? <laughs> like They can post comments, but uh, for the most part, I guess like I'm the authority on each post. Even if people disagree with me, they're welcome to comment, and I will take that into consideration. I mean, it sounds worse coming out of my mouth now that I'm saying it, but it's kind of true. No, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, that's a part of it. This is the internet, right? So anything that you do, you're going to have people that love you for it, and you're going to have 10 times the amount of people who hate you for it. I have not been in this situation myself because I don't have the amount of recognition as you, but how do you deal with people who are trolls or haters or people who are just out to get you like you don't have to get specific around who they are but i'm really wondering how you process that because you seem like a pretty normal well-adjusted human being and it can be a little tough sometimes just even reading about what people are are saying about you for for no good reason so there's been a number of things over the years that like i don't want to get into specifics but like people find a reason to dislike you or hold a grudge like Maybe I killed them on turn one, or like maybe I wrote something stupid. It doesn't really matter. I just don't let it bother me. Uh, it might like 
strike me initially as like the look at this guy. Like, why would he say something about like that? He doesn't even know me. But that is the internet. Like, people are going to be rude getting a reaction out of you. So you kind of just need to like take the hit, let it roll, and then like keep on going because you're never going to advance in your life with negative things weighing you down. May that be like internet trolls or bad friends or like don't liking where you're working or like you don't like a class you're taking, like just change it. Like if it's a negative influence, just get rid of it. And that's something that really dawned on me after I got to college that I didn't have to be around people I didn't like or like let people say rude things to me. I just like didn't have to associate with those people. Right. You can make a choice, right? Exactly. Yeah. And what is it about magic fundamentally that has made you so involved in it? Like, I know I should have asked this earlier, but why do you love magic? Like, there's got to be something that keeps you in the game. What, what is it specifically? It's weird because it's changed over the years. So originally it was just like just a hobby, something to do with my friends. And then my magic friends became my best friends in some ways. And I still have really good non-magic friends, don't get me wrong. It's tough to say, but like a lot of my magic friends have become my best friends. Like I've gone to more magic weddings in the last couple of years than I have non-magic weddings, for example. But also, it's just kind of an escape from all the stresses of day-to-day life. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Like some days you have bad days at work. I mean, my, I really like my job, so I don't have that many. But on the days where I do, I go home, I shuffle up some cardboard. I don't play much online, but like go to the game store, play some maybe EDH or Standard or Legacy. Just, you know, relax. Because when you're not playing Magic, or I mean, when you're playing Magic, you're not thinking about, you know, student loans or things that you have to do, etc. So you're saying this has been different from in the past, right? Is it okay to say that in the past you might have been, it might have been more about the competition and now it's more about the community? A lot of it's still the competition, to be honest. I'm just a very competitive person. Everything about my life is competitive in one way or another. It's just like something that drives me. Like, I just want to be better. I want to do better. It's something that's been ingrained in me since I was young. Have you ever thought about what made you so competitive? Probably my dad. He's also very competitive. Like, from the early days of playing catch and, like, wanting to throw harder than him. I don't know. Like, that's the earliest memory I can think of. But my dad was always just very competitive with me. Like, you should want to be better than me at things. I actually remember my dad, like, stereotypical dad response of, like, I was on a losing Little League team, and he and at the end of the league, they came over to give us trophies. He's like, really? We didn't make the playoff. And, like, he wasn't wrong. Like, I kind of had the same opinion. Like, not everyone should get a trophy. Right. It's like kind of like that millennial attitude where, like, everybody's equal. Everyone should get the same thing. I don't know if I agree with that, even though I'm in the same age range. Yeah, so you definitely agree that people should earn their accomplishments, right? Definitely. Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit and just talk about some of maybe the the processes that you undergo when you play Magic. This is going to be a series of questions here. The first one I'm going to ask is whether you have any daily or weekly rituals when it comes to Magic. Like, do you have a routine or habit that you, you constantly revisit or go back to? Not really. I just, like, don't have anything like that. Like, I shuffle the same way, I guess. And, like, I set up my playmat in, like, deck box and notepad the same way every round. But I wouldn't really consider them to be a ritual because it's not something that I 
subconsciously do is just like this is the way that I place my deck. Although it's weird because I'm right-handed, but I always place my deck on the left-hand side of the table, and so do all of my opponents. So like sometimes my deck will hit theirs, or like they'll touch the top card of my deck. Yeah. What about when you are playing in a tournament, like whether it's a local one or whether it's a bigger one? Is there any preparation process or thought process that goes on in your head when you before you start those? So I think a lot of tournaments come down to deck building, regardless of the format. I try to be a, te- a very tight technical player, regardless of the format. Like I do my best not to miss triggers, and it's pretty rare when I do. It's not really doing anything technical or anything like that. It's just like choosing sideboard slots that I think, in theory, would be good that weekend. Where it's a lot of like theory crafting, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, so deck building is over half the battle. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. So you don't have any specific process as you go from round to round or as you are shuffling up between games or anything like that there's, there's nothing specific going through your head or any 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 thoughts at all okay i guess like when you put it like that so every round i think one round at a time uh i don't look going to an event and get to round six and i'm like oh i'm six oh i just need a three oh from here that's like a very mentality to have and i know some people like that and they just tilt after that first loss and I don't understand it because at the end of the day, nine one or eight one isn't that different from nine zero. Like you're still in a great spot to top eight this event. So like one round at a time is like something that I definitely do. It's gonna sound a little cheesy, but it's just like a corny lyric that like helps with a lot of things in life, like dashboard confessional. Uh, remember to breathe. Just like take things slowly. Look at what you have to do, and then just like make the best. Don't rush it. And this is coming from someone that plays very quickly. Uh, it's prettier that I go to time of the round, not just because of the deck that I play. And I try not to play games of magic or anything in between rounds. Like, I want to relax my brain. I just find that some people get mentally exhausted by the, the end of events, and it's from, like, playing games in between or stuff like that. Like, I just like to talk to people in between rounds and take my mind off the game. Right. What about your interactions with your opponents? Are you generally keeping to yourself? Do you make small talk? Are there certain things that you try to do maybe before game one or between games or during the game? A lot of people like look at your life pad to see if you've like built damage or not, stuff like that. So I definitely like hide that. They also like try to ask you questions based on like where you are and like, oh, I think I've played you at like an event in modern what modern deck were you playing last year? Like, oh, I was playing Blue White, so now they're going to put you on control. Mm-hmm. And, like, stuff like that, it's just, like, quit trying to get me. <laughs> or, like, I try to make non-magic talk. I'm like, oh, I see you're wearing, like, a Raptor shirt. Uh, are you actually a big basketball fan? Or, like, oh, I see you're wearing a Detroit Tigers hat. My fantasy baseball team is actually called the Verlander Zombie Killers. Fun stuff, because I feel like trying to always steal that information feels scummy. And it's not something I really want to do. I'm not calling people that do it scummy. It's just not something I want to be doing. So it sounds like to you that's a case of trying too hard or like trying to get every single like minuscule percentage of edge based on like angle shooting or not angle shooting, but just trying to like get every piece of information from your opponents. That's not something that you particularly endorse, right? No. Uh, I do like to make small talk though. It's generally not angle shooting, I guess. I blame people for doing it because, like, after a while, those percentage wins probably add up. But it just doesn't seem worthwhile to me. Right. So while we're on this topic, I mean, are there certain 
Do you have certain, like, codes of conduct or guidelines when you play Magic? Are there certain things that you feel like um, are the right thing to do and certain things that you feel like are not the right thing to do? I'm probably the wrong person to ask about this. There's a number of people that dislike me over, like, somewhat questionable things. Like, I've had people concede without a tendrils in my deck just because I'm like, Infernal Tutor, four black mana floating, go get tendrils, and, like, we'll just pick up their cards. Mm-hmm. It's completely legal. And I've gotten a number of people on it in the past, which is why people today generally ask me to show them the tendrils, which is completely fine. Yep. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but some people very strongly disagree. I don't cheat, and I definitely look down on people that do, because this is a casual card game. Uh, I don't really see why people would cheat. So I definitely like front on that. I don't think anything I do is within the realm of that. Uh, I guess that's my answer, James. <laughs> no, I mean, it sounds like you're very, you're just very competitive and you're playing within the rules, so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So that's, at least that's how I would look at it. So I guess I'm also wondering, this is maybe less on mental approach and more on just uh, anecdotal, but can you tell me, like, what was the, what's been the most challenging magic-related situation that you've been in? Maybe as you were playing in a tournament sometime, or how did you overcome it? It's tough. Uh, like, I can think of like favorite matches and stuff like that, but I can't really think of a situation where I was like, man, this was really tough. I don't know. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I can think of like a personal experience that I thought was tough. I had just drawn into the top eight of a large local Syracuse event. Uh, there used to be these events called the Winter Wonderland events where they would give away beta and four and black quarter tundras back when beta tundras were like four to five hundred dollars. So they would give away like a place out of each, and I just drawn into the top eight. I want to say there was like 140 players, and I found out immediately after I just drawn into the top eight that my grandfather had died. And my parents were like, do you want us to come get you? Do you want to finish the event? And I took the round to think about it. And at the end of the round, even though it was like very tough for me, I had decided that he had already passed, and I can continue to grieve at another point, but it doesn't really make sense to just drop from this event because the outcome couldn't change at that point. Mm-hmm. So I think if I remember correctly, I like just lost in the first round of the top eight and then went home. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty pretty tough situation. But the takeaway I have from listening to your story is just that sometimes even though things are are sad or tragic, sometimes things have already happened and you have to learn to, to process that and maybe move on at that point in time. Definitely. Yeah, I hope most people have never will never have to have experience that but that definitely sounds like a a tough situation yeah is what it is right yeah can we change gears slightly because you did mention like um you remember like some of your highs like what would be your favorite magic moment of all time and maybe describe the the particulars around it can i mention two go ahead this is this is your time so when i first like i wrote an article last year or actually like let's say three months ago it's called like tes memories in there, I talk about how the first one was when I first started playing Star Cities, Mike Edinger, he was on that Team Sexy from Syracuse with a stupid name. And he's like, you really need a great shot someone on camera. I toned that down compared to his exact words, but that was essentially it. And so when I won Star City Washington in the finals, I actually got to great shot my opponent on camera. I got to great shot for 21, killing my opponent's medallion click and then dealing him 20. It was uh, definitely like one of my favorite moments because on top of winning, I got to accomplish one of my goals. And I just love grape-shotting people. I mean, who doesn't? 
the other being, I believe it was Star City Games Baltimore in 2013, maybe 2012. Uh, I'm playing against Todd Anderson on camera in what is a winning it match. I go like turn one ponder, and Todd goes turn one Gristlebrand, and then I kill him. Like, I just won three first turn Gristlebrand. I don't know how many of you have tried playing Storm Combo after your opponents resolved the Gristlebrand, but 99.9% of the time, you just lose. So Todd had activated immediately because he had a Spell Pierce in hand and went down to 13 life or maybe 12 life and looking for a Lotus Petal so that way he could use the Spell Pierce in his hand. But he missed and then didn't want to go down to 4 or 5. From there... I just played a couple discard spells into Burning Wish and then tendrils them for 14. And it was like the perfect storm of events, that time pun not intended, where if maybe if he activated a second time, he would have found that Lotus Petal and I wouldn't have been able to kill him. Or if he just didn't activate at all, I definitely couldn't kill him. So it was just like a series of fortunate events that allowed for me to kill through a first turn Bristlebrand for a win and end. And that wasn't a win in it at all because I had terrible breakers and I lost in the next round. But at the time, people that I had not talked to in forever just started texting me. They're like, oh my God, that was nuts. That was incredible. <laughs> it was definitely like a very high point at the time. Right. I didn't know you at the time, but I also remember watching that match a few times and just thinking like, holy shit, this actually happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it actually did. And that's magic. I mean, what was going through your mind at the time when that did happen? So, like, I've gone back and watched the coverage, and I lean back, and I'm wearing this hoodie, and it's so hot in that room, and my face is just, like, red from, like, flusteredness paired with, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I just won. But also, it is so hot in here, and I just let out this huge sigh, and the commentators are like, Bryant knows that he just got away with one. I'm like, yeah, I did. And then Todd was like, you need to show me the tendrils, at least, after he had picked up his cards. Fortunately, tendrils was in my board, but... I thought about it after, and I'm like, even if it wasn't, I think I would have argued with the judge that Todd had already picked up all of his cards. I don't know, just like a side thought. Yeah, I didn't know he did that. I mean, he already picked up his cards, so he already scooped. So um, there's, it's pretty black and white at that point. Probably. goes back to what we were discussing a few minutes ago about like moral grays. Yeah, uh, but also, it's interesting that you mentioned you know, how hot it was, and because if you're, if you're somebody like me who just watched it on camera without talking to you just now, I would have made a whole bunch of assumptions. I think it just goes to show that sometimes what you see on camera, there's a lot going on behind someone's mind, right? So you can't always make assumptions based on what what you see on coverage or just like some secondhand, thirdhand story, you know? Agreed. Yeah. So that's been really cool. And like, I thought your high point was going to be the the top eight, but it sounds like this was much more memorable and, and epic, uh, pun intended. How do you think your deck will evolve over time? I mean, is it it's not, it's obviously something that you've been really invested in for quite a number of years, and legacy format is not going away. I mean, are there particular ways that you see the deck evolving? Is it like only when new cards get printed it will evolve, or is it is it constantly evolving as we speak? Uh, so August first, I, I think it's actually August sixth, but I'm going to say August first is actually ten ten years since I posted the first list on the source. So I want to do something cool for it. Like I might do a giveaway on my site or something. Uh, currently the Facebook group has just under 500 people. I'm doing a small giveaway for that. Like maybe some signed cards from like myself and like magic artists and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But like, I'm pretty excited that like TS has been around for almost 10 years at this point. 
And as for like the deck evolution, I'm at the moment I'm kind of hoping that Sensei's Divining Top gets banned, so that way I can cut green from my deck and I can go down to a true three color deck. Because right now I consider it to be like three point five. I just want to quit playing Bayou. Uh, that would be a good step. And as far as like evolutions go, uh, it's just like the deck will always change with the metagame. I love the metagame my sideboard against you know what's going on at the moment. So I think even if they stop printing magic cards for some reason, I would still find reasons to change my sideboard. Right. Do you have any goals that are magic related for the next three to five years? If you're looking really far into the future. So I mentioned that I've been going to more Grand Prix, and I don't consider myself to be a pro at all. I barely consider myself to be a grinder. I just don't play enough magic to warrant those titles. Like, I write some content here and there, and I love playing one deck, but uh, I would like to make the Pro Tour. Uh, I qualified once when I top-aided for Columbus, but that was back in the day before they paid for your flight. So, like, being an 18 or 19-year-old kid... Actually, I think I was 20 or 21 at the time. So, like, I qualified for the Pro Tour, but it was, like, the fourth week of my senior year, and I would have had to, like, pay out of pocket to go to Amsterdam. It just didn't seem worth it to me at the time. But I think now that I'm in a more stable place in my life, I would like to experience it once. So I think just, like, qualifying would be nice. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess that's uh, really the goal is to get to the next level and to, uh, to, to play on the Pro Tour, right? Yeah, like I've played against a number of like what I consider to be like the best players in the world right now. I've beaten some of them. I've lost some of them. Uh, they're all probably better than I am. Most of them definitely are. But I think that I could at least put up a fight. Right. So to reach this goal or to be consistently at the Pro Tour, do you think there's something about your game or your approach that, that you're going to work on? Not really, to be honest. I think a lot of these people just play more than I do. And I feel like that's a lot of what Magic is. Is when you're playing every weekend, you know what people are trying to do to you more than what you're going to try to do. So, like, the more you play, the better you will be. And I think it's very tough for people that play casually to be better than people that play more often. Is that a choice that you think you'll be making, though, is trying to play more um, to line up with your goal? Or do you think that you're happy with where you are right now in terms of investment in the game? I'd like to play a little bit more. I don't know if it will happen. Uh, I've been traveling like once or twice a weekend uh, the last year or so with the recent months being more. It's just like there's been a lot of events in this area uh, over the last couple of months. I think it's just like more events happen in the summer. But I don't know. It's also like choosing where you want to go. So like next month is the Star City Games Invitational. Now that they cut legacy i'm not sure if i want to go because like only first place qualifies for the pro tour or i could go to a regional ptq that weekend and take my chance on a better odds of top eating or top four and to go to the pro tour so like things like that it's just like picking your spots mm -hmm. and it's going to come down to what i think is more valuable for the long run right so i think i can send my decision but i still haven't really decided Okay, that's fine. You got some time to figure it out, and there's obviously a lot of events in your area, so um, you have the, you have some choices. Yeah. Do you have any thing that you feel comfortable sharing in terms of life goals, maybe outside of Magic, that you will have for the next three to five years if you look long term? So I've thought about this recently. Like my annual review at my job is coming up uh, in the next two weeks. I've been at my current uh, job for three years. I love it. And uh, when writing my review, it was like, where, where do you see yourself going? 
And I am a current digital designer, web developer, weird title, whatever. And I began thinking, like, what title do I want in three years? And I could see myself still working there because I love what I do and I love where I work. It's a very, like, competitive environment where instead of competing against each other, we're all, like, competing for new information. So it's very healthy and then I'm constantly growing. And I wish I had something more like that in my magic life, to be honest. Like, the recent trend on the Star City Tour is, like, teams. But I feel like they're doing it in a very tacky way. It's almost like uh, NASCAR right now for them, which isn't anything that I want to be a part of. But if I had a team of people like that that weren't wearing NASCAR shirts and constantly spouting advertisements and magic, it'd probably be very good for me. Uh, but back to your original question is, I don't know, I could see myself like managing people within uh, graphic design or like web design in three to five years, hopefully. But I don't know. I'm just like kind of taking where the wave rides. Yeah, and that's a that's a great answer. I mean, not all of us know what we want to do even a year from now. So that's uh, that's totally fair. So, Brian, I'm going to wrap things up with one final question for you. Okay. If you could go back in time five years and tell something to yourself, whether it's magic or life-related, what would you tell yourself from five years ago? Hmm. Pay off more student loans, invest in more Blackwater dual lands. <laughs> it sounds like you don't have too many regrets. Yeah, I mean, I like my life. I'm in a pretty good spot right now. I'm pretty happy. All right. It's always great to end on a positive note when I'm talking to uh, one of the best magic players and human beings around. So thank you so much, Bryant, for taking the time to talk to me. And I wish you continued success in all of your magic endeavors. Thank you, James. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Take care. You as well. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Humans of Magic. I would love to get feedback from you on how to make the show better. You can find me on Twitter at James underscore Sue. That's James underscore H-S-U. Please also check out my website at writtenbyjames.com and drop me a line. Thanks for listening and have an awesome day.